You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Christians, by and large, are not really all that clear about what the kingdom is. I think most Christians understand it has to do with Jesus' rule. He's the king. They usually know that one has to repent and be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. They know the kingdom is not completely visible now, but they're kind of hazy on other things. Is the kingdom only a spiritual kingdom or will it manifest physically at some point? Are we part of the kingdom now or is it still on the way? What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase kingdom of God? Is it something that we are a part of now or is it still yet to come? Where is it? Who's invited to it? In today's message from Pastor Tom, you'll hear much more about the kingdom of God and how we can participate in it. You'll learn why it was the most frequent topic that Jesus taught about during his time on earth. We have a calling right now to anticipate the coming kingdom and to be witnesses of it to those who do not yet know the Lord. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 1 with today's edition of Discover Hope. We're told there are some 200 countries in our world today. Many of these countries are mighty. We're in one of them. Some are tiny. But all of them are passing away. Just like the greatest civilizations of the past passed away. They had their season to flourish. Then they moved past their prime. And now we can visit them only at archaeological sites. They're done. They're over. No doubt if you lived in the heyday of these great empires, you might have thought, we're invincible. Mighty Egypt, Greece, Assyria, the Mongols, Persians, the Ottoman Empire, Babylonians, Carthaginians, of course, the one who trampled down the whole world, Rome. But they all passed away. They're long gone. So too... The governments of today, all will topple, all will end. The future belongs, not to them, but to the kingdom of God. Or as Matthew's gospel calls it, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is such a lofty and magnificent theme in the Bible. In fact, it was Jesus' favorite teaching theme in the gospels. Many of his memorable statements were about the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, 24. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to, what? Enter the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 62. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He scolded the Pharisees' lack of true religion. He said, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 8, 1 says he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. His parables were meant to picture the kingdom of God in different facets. It is like a pearl of great price. There's no greater treasure than Christ. He said it's like a mustard seed that's the smallest in the garden, and yet it grows very large. A dragnet, a sower going out to sow seeds, and the seed lands on different kinds of soils. Some are hard, but some are ready to receive the word of God and bear fruit. Or a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. All of these to illustrate and help us to understand the kingdom of God. Jesus produced miraculous signs as evidence of the kingdom's power. None of his enemies doubted that he did it. They just said, well, he does it by magic and sorcery, by Satan's power. 
In John 3, 3, spoke of the need of a new birth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, some people think they just come to church, get baptized, and get into the kingdom of God. It's not true. They need a new birth. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was largely about the righteousness of the kingdom of God. He said, and I think many of you know this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. He even told them how to enter into the kingdom of God. He said, this is the way. Enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate. Concerning the children that were being hindered from coming to him, he got indignant and he scolded. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You have to enter by being humble like a child, you see. One main petition he taught us to pray when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, is thy kingdom, what? Come. That's how the will of God will be done, by the way, by the kingdom coming. Seek the kingdom. Pray for the kingdom. Enter the kingdom. But you know, I think Christians, by and large, are not really all that clear about what the kingdom is. I think most Christians understand it has to do with Jesus' rule. He's the king. They usually know that one has to repent and be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. They know the kingdom is not completely visible now, but they're kind of hazy on other things. Is the kingdom only a spiritual kingdom, or will it manifest physically at some point? Are we part of the kingdom now, or is it still on the way? Does it arrive in phases, or kind of gushes all at once? Is it located in heaven, or is it located on earth, or both? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the same thing. That doesn't necessarily mean the kingdom that is in heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven come to earth is the idea. Learning about the kingdom of God is pretty important since it was a big theme of Jesus and it's actually helpful to us, to the church. How do we relate to the kingdom of God? What's our part in all of that? Here we are, we're church, I got that, we're supposed to witness, but how does all that relate to this kingdom theme? What is this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached? What is that all about? Who are we? Where do we fit in? What will we experience in the future? What are we supposed to expect or not expect? The kingdoms of this world, the political entities, fight to gain hold or to hold on to power or gain more power, right? This is what they want. They want their economy to go well. They want protection. They enact laws to protect their values. But the church doesn't fit with their agendas. We are proclaimers of a different kingdom. And our future is invested in that kingdom, not here. That's why concern about U.S. politics is so much less important. Why are we fighting over that which is not our kingdom? It's not our fight. The church has been dispersed among all the nations of the world, not just the United States of America. We walk among them. We live among them. But we are citizens of a far distant country. One that's described as a better country. Yes, we can brag in God. It is a kingdom that actually is poised to invade this present world and win. The church must know. We must know that. We must understand this, for it shapes our role today. Our purpose is not to abolish world hunger. Our purpose is not to heal all the sicknesses of the world. It's not to right all the social injustices. It's not to root for the president or root against the president. It is to witness concerning 
a king who's coming back into this world, who he said will usher in the kingdom of God with full power and glory over that day. Witnessing, in a sense, is telling all the people of all the kingdoms of this world it's their chance to surrender before that king on his white horse with that sword coming out of his mouth will return and slay all the kingdoms of the world that are against him. It's not too late now. You can repent and accept him as your king and pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. You can do that now. He'll forgive you now, but not then. Not then. You've got to make up a choice. You've got to make up your mind. He's coming. The king is coming. It's his world. God said, I'm going to give the entire planet to my son. And everyone else, all the citizens of these kingdoms need to realize, you know what? We better surrender now. That's what the gospel is. The gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. You want to be a part of it? Or do you want to be destroyed by it? It's pretty clear. Today we're going to see that the kingdom was on the minds of Jesus' disciples right before Jesus left into heaven. What we call the ascension of Jesus. It's in Acts chapter 1. We're in verses 6 through 8 today. If you open there and we'll read that together. Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8. We finished verses 1 through 5 and we're just moving on to the next section now. So when they, that is the disciples, had come together with Jesus, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I think we qualify as being in the remotest part of the earth from there. Now you may remember the first five opening verses. Luke, who is the author of Acts, laid out the historicity of the Christian gospel, Jesus' bodily resurrection, this baptism of the Holy Spirit as an event in world history. All of these are real. All of these are consequential world events. They're not little religious themes. If you're going to understand the world the way it is today, you have to grasp the meaning of these historical events. We saw in those verses that Luke's historical accuracy is not a matter of faith. It has been abundantly confirmed by archaeological discovery. Anyone who denies that is not educated. It is true. He is accurate. So studying Acts is studying real history. That's what church history is. It's real history. And for us, it's really more than history. It's not just like we sit in a history class and we learn about dates and names and it doesn't seem to connect to us at all. This is our story also because we're connected to them. We're just 20 centuries removed. This is how it all got started. We learn from church history. What mistakes did they make? What should we do today? That's the whole fun of studying history. Is when you're at the end of history and you get to look back, you should be the smartest of all people, right? Somehow we miss it, though, you know. In this passage, we learn that the church was given its marching orders right at the beginning. Of course it was. Jesus was a smart general. What were his marching orders? Well, it's very similar to Matthew's Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them everything. So too here in Acts, we see we are to be witnesses where to all the nations concerning who? Christ. And we are to do it in the shadow of an approaching kingdom. 
There is a kingdom of God coming. And every, witness, every time we witness, we kind of have that back behind us. We're telling people, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. It's going to run out. The kingdom is coming. They may scoff. They may laugh. But you have to tell them. There is a future kingdom coming. This text indicates that. We are to anticipate it. Also, though, we are to be presently working towards it. Spiritually, we might say we are in that kingdom now. That is, that we are citizens of that kingdom. But we're not actually in the kingdom in its proper sense. But we do serve that kingdom. We announce that kingdom. We witness concerning the king of that kingdom. That's the clarifying role for the church of Jesus presently. It's so simple, really. Two present actions, you might say, define the church. What are we about? Two present actions. This is our outline. I'm sure I won't get through both today. First is we anticipate the kingdom. We anticipate the kingdom. And the second is we witness for Christ's kingdom. We anticipate it and we witness for it. That's what we're going to see here. If you look and focus on verse 6, you see that we should be anticipating the kingdom. It says, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, there's a lot of sharp criticisms against the disciples for actually asking this question. You read the Bible commentators and teachers, and they really jump all over the disciples on this, for asking this question. They're like, oh, look at their motives again. They want earthly power. Oh, my, they didn't understand anything about Jesus' kingdom. They kind of missed it. And there's this criticism of the disciples for asking this question, but this question was a perfectly suitable question to ask at this exact precise time. It was fitting for the occasion. Why? Well, think about the scene and the setting once again. Here they are standing with Jesus. Who is he? Ah, He is the king. He's the resurrected king of Israel. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. For the last 40 days, we were told that Jesus has been speaking to them about what topic? Look back at verse 3. What was the topic? The kingdom of God. That has been Jesus' main teaching theme, not only before his crucifixion, but also post his resurrection. He hung around on the earth 40 days and he taught about the kingdom of God to these very disciples. And Jesus had already opened their minds. They had been dense and thick up to this point in time, but he had already opened their minds, we're told in Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, to understand the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And so the disciples at this point in time were actually more in tune with the truth about Christ and his kingdom than they ever had been before. They had been brought up to speed because Jesus went through those prophecies and said, this is what was said in the Old Testament that is concerning the Messiah. And not only that, but where were the disciples standing at this time? Well, they were standing right outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus is telling them, you must stay in Jerusalem. You must remain in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is what? It's the city of David, where David's throne had been during the Israeli kingdom. And what did Jesus say was about to happen in Jerusalem where they stayed? And the answer is they were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit was promised to the nation of Israel. And when the Holy Spirit came in the fullness, it was the time of the arrival of the restored kingdom of God. The Spirit's descent, in other words, according to the Old Testament prophets, was associated with the arrival of this restored kingdom of God. Isaiah 32. Verses 15 through 20 indicates that after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the nation of Israel, justice and righteousness would dwell on the land. 
The natural land in Israel itself would be transformed physically and would be blessed in a way never seen before. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 8 through 10 also says, In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So the disciples must have been doing some figuring, doing some calculating about all of this. And they, they're kind of adding up all of this in their minds. And, you know, in other locations, we, we find out that the disciples got together and they were talking among themselves. And Jesus would ask them, what are you saying among yourselves? And draw that out of them and get them to talk about it. I don't know if that happened this time or not. But they, they bring the one question that they have for Jesus at this time. By the way, have you ever thought about what would be the one question I would ask Jesus if I got to be there? What question would you have asked? Now, to our shame, we might ask more things that concern ourselves. What about this? Why'd you allow this to happen to me, Lord? Lord? To the disciples' credit. We're going to give them credit here, okay? Because we're always picking up Peter, etc. Let's give them a little bit of credit. They were asking about the kingdom of God. They wanted to know God's agenda. Is this the time? They were out of themselves. They were on the Lord's agenda. I like this, actually. So in my mind, this is the perfect question for the moment. Is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel now. I don't think they knew of any reason why the kingdom should wait anymore. Why wouldn't it appear right now? The Old Testament gave absolutely no time indication as to the link between when Messiah would suffer, talked about his sufferings, and then he would reign and be glorified, talked about that, but didn't give anything about the time in between. So they wanted to know, is it now? Is it now? Can't read the scripture and get that one, Lord. You tell us, is it now? Now, you and I know the answer is no. But they didn't know. They were excited. They were anticipating its arrival. Now, as I said, a good number of commentators assert that this question by the disciples is completely out of touch with what Jesus has been trying to teach them about what the kingdom of God actually is. In other words, they think this question reveals these disciples are still acting like blockheads. They don't understand that the kingdom is just spiritual. It's not literal. Oh my goodness, they still didn't get it by now. They think it's a shame. Jesus has been teaching and teaching and teaching his disciples so long about all these spiritual aspects of the kingdom of God, and they failed even at this very late date to grasp there's not going to be a physical, national, Israeli kingdom, guys. You miss it all. These interpreters think that what Jesus is doing here is trying to get them to stop anticipating the Jewish kingdom and start focusing on the church work. Some go so far as to say that Jesus is telling them in a roundabout way that the church is the kingdom. There's not going to be another kind of a kingdom to anticipate. Indeed, anticipating that kind of a kingdom on earth, that's fleshly, not spiritual. Well, I don't think Jesus thought negatively of the disciples' expectation of a coming future kingdom. Notice, please, if you look back at it, the words that are expressed here and the response. What are the words? Restore the kingdom to Israel. That's very easy to interpret. Restore the kingdom to Israel. They're asking 
about a restoration. That word restore, apokathisdemi, means to return or reestablish. Some say to bring back, or when someone was restored to health, this word would be used. Or restore something to its former state. It's a word used in Matthew 12, 13, for example, the man that had the withered hand, and Jesus said, stretch out your hand, and it was, it says it was restored, same word, put back the way it was, healthy. So they're asking about Israel's kingdom coming back, and they're equating that with the kingdom of God. Was that correct? Well, God's kingdom in the Bible, and this gets to be confusing for some people, it's used actually in a number of different senses. In the largest and broadest sense of the idea or concept of the kingdom of God, the whole world, indeed the whole universe, is part of the kingdom of God. Why? Because he sits on a throne and he rules over everything. And that really is just an expression of his sovereignty. You follow? So like you'll read Psalm 47, 2, and it says, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great God over all the earth. A great God and a great king, actually, it says, over all the earth. So he's a king, and that's his kingdom. The church, too, you and I, for the last 2,000 years, all the Christians, and we're going to see this, belongs to the spiritual kingdom or the mystery aspect of the kingdom of God that grows and spreads among the nations kind of quietly. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, for example, and this is just one example, says God rescued us from the domain of darkness. Everybody that's a non-Christian is controlled in the domain of darkness, whether they realize it or not, whether they think they're enlightened or not. They are controlled by the domain of darkness. But he rescued us from that and, past tense, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there has to be some sense in which we, being saved, are part of the kingdom. But God, throughout history and in the future, manifests another form of the rule of God, another form of the kingdom of God. Some call it the mediatorial kingdom. That is, it is a kingdom that will be mediated by a king, someone underneath of God. He did that in Israel. The people cried out for a king. God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And he appointed Saul. Remember that? Saul the king. It was a big deal for Israel. They finally had a king. So Saul was ruling as the king underneath the main king, who's God, and he was the mediator king. But Saul was disobedient. And so Samuel, in rather dramatic fashion, said, Saul, the kingdom's going to be torn away from you and given to another. And God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint David. And he said, I chose David. David will be the king. And now David was the mediator king. He wasn't the king of all kings. But he was the mediator king. God would mediate his rule through David and through David's house. The kingdom of Israel, under the rule of David, then Solomon and others, was the kingdom of God manifest in this way. And it grew to mighty proportions in those days. And the throne of David's kingdom was divinely guaranteed. His throne in Jerusalem would endure forever. That's what we call the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised David concerning his physical descendants, your house, this is 2 Samuel seven sixteen. your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever, unending. David's throne was in Jerusalem. David's throne was not in heaven. David's throne was on earth. 
As you know, throughout Israel's history, the Davidic house lasted a long time. It got split also. But then it was temporarily taken away from David's descendants. Why? Because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience to the law of God and the covenant of Moses. But because of God's promise and because of the Davidic covenant, that kingdom had to return at some point in time. So the disciples, like all the Jews were taught, they knew the kingdom one day would be restored. I knew it. Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. In the end, no kingdom will stand except the kingdom of heaven. In today's message from Pastor Tom, you heard about this coming kingdom that we're praying for and how you can take action by anticipating it and by witnessing about it to others. Jesus came to earth to invite us into this kingdom, and it's our job to invite others into it too, because one day judgment will come and it will be too late for those who have rejected it. If you enjoyed today's message on Discover Hope, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to ask you to prayerfully consider donating to this ministry to help us expand the reach of the gospel. You can give securely online at hopebible.org. Do you live in the area of Columbia, Maryland? If so, you're invited to become part of our Sunday morning gatherings here at Hope Bible Church. Join us for a morning of Bible study, worship, and fellowship. Find out more by visiting our website. Again, that's hopebible.org. Be sure to tune in next time to Discover Hope to hear Pastor Tom continue teaching about the coming kingdom of God. You'll learn more about why the question that the disciples asked Jesus about the coming kingdom was actually a good and warranted question. You will hear what Jesus' answer is and what it means for the future of God's people. To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.